Hello, and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 26. We've done, um, we've kind of been all over the world the last few weeks, covered all kinds of different killers, but today we're going back to our roots. We're in the United States, we're covering a serial killer, and this week's episode is all about Earl Nelson, the gorilla killer. The 1920s saw a number of serial murderers in North America, but no one was more active than Earl Nelson, also known as the gorilla killer or dark strangler. Nelson appeared to be able to kill at will as he wandered the country for over a year, breaking into and out of suburban residences and boarding houses with ease. His body count was in the mid-20s, and unlike most serial killers, he hardly ever used a weapon. It appears that Nelson took pleasure in suffocating his victims, and he was known as the gorilla killer because of his extraordinary strength. Police started to believe that this assassin resembled an inhuman version of Edgar Allan Poe's Rue Morgue Murderer. Nelson also had a unique style. He would pick a house with a rooms for rent sign, gain entry by pretending to be a potential roommate, and choke any woman he discovered alone inside to death, assault the dead body, likely conceal it under the bed, and then steal jewelry and clothing. He leaves a trail of bodies behind him that stretched all the way from Philadelphia to Chicago, San Francisco, Baltimore, Oakland, Buffalo, and even Winnipeg, Canada. Earl Leonard Nelson had the ability to frighten adults even as a young child. He had an abnormally strong sex drive before puberty and was unnaturally obsessed with the Bible even as a child. Earl's own family begins to dread him in his teens, but no one could have foreseen in the bitterly cold winter of 1926 that his depravity would explode into a 16-month frenzy of vicious rape, barbaric murder, and unimaginable defilement, acts that would become the trademark of one of the most notorious monsters of the 20th century, whose bloodlust would not be matched until the likes of Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, and Jeffrey Dahmer. The lone child of James Farrell and Francis Nelson, Earl Leonard Nelson is born on May 12, 1897 in San Francisco, California. Earl's mother would pass away from syphilis she contracted from her husband only 10 months after Earl is born. Within that same year, Earl's father would also pass away from syphilis. Earl ends up being raised by his maternal grandma, Jenny Nelson, and he's raised in an extremely puritanical environment by his grandma, who believes that sex is dirty and immoral. Obviously, this is a very uh, religious household at the same time. At the age of seven, Earl is expelled from school due to poor behavior. His teachers complained that he would quote passages from the Bible that alluded to a powerful beast and he'd speak to intangible unseen beings. He would also enjoy uh, watching his cousin Rachel undress. So early on, we're seeing the signs of some depraved behavior happening. When Earl was only 10 years old, he hits a streetcar with his bicycle and has to be taken home unconscious with a hole in his temple. He ends up being unconscious for around 
six days. And even after he appears to recover, he would frequently complain of headaches and memory gaps. So we have a traumatic childhood, the loss of both of his parents, raised in a very religious household, combined now with a head injury. So Earl is not being set up for success, not an excuse for anything that happens later, but interesting to note that he does have these indicators early on in his life uh, that something might not be quite right. Nelson is primarily on his own by the time he's 18 years old. Having been rejected by society and having a family who thought he was generally strange. In many ways, he had willingly adopted that lifestyle ever since he stopped attending school. His aunt and cousins would frequently recall that he would wander off for days, but return in odd different clothing than when he left. Although it's unknown what he did for food or money during these escapes from reality, it isn't difficult to assume given how they concluded. He took money and food from the homes, and when the owners came back, he would flee from police. In any case, he was punished for some of these crimes, and the way that he was eventually apprehended um, was from breaking into a cabin he claimed he thought was abandoned after going missing from his home on multiple occasions. So he ends up being sent to San Quentin State Prison. He was released from prison for this crime on September 6, 1916, but on March 9, 1917, he's taken into custody in Stockton for minor larceny. Nelson was imprisoned for a further six months before being released, at which point he's again taken into custody in Los Angeles on suspicion of theft. But Nelson will flee from the Los Angeles County Jail after about five months. Nelson would enroll in the U.S. military sometime in late 1917, but left service after only six weeks. He would repeatedly follow this same pattern, enlisting in various military divisions under various names, and then desert. Nelson was admitted to the Napa State Mental Hospital in 1918 as a result of his bizarre and erratic behavior while serving in the U.S. Navy for a very short time. According to Schechter in his book, uh, The Savage Trail of a True American Monster, Nelson mentioned hallucinations and other paranoid delusions in his preliminary discussion with psychiatrist William Pritchard, who made the following observation, quote, he has seen faces, heard music, and at times believed people were poisoning him. Voices sometimes whisper to him to kill himself, says that if he were kept in jail, he would get something sharp and cut the veins in his wrists. So during the time that he's institutionalized, Nelson manages to break out at least three times before employees simply give up looking for him. The staff at the facility begin to refer to him as Houdini because of his propensity for making escapes. On March 17, 1919, Nelson is officially released from the Navy in absentia, and his hospital file was closed, with a notation only that he had improved. After that, Nelson obtains employment as a caretaker at St. Mary's Hospital under an alias, Evan Lewis Fuller. It's there he encounters Mary Martin, a secretary, who's 60 years old. They start dating and will get married in August of 1919. Their union, however, is very brief because Nelson will make her life a living hell with his irrational jealous rages, 
strange sexual demands, delusional beliefs, and increasingly violent behavior. She'll end their relationship after only six months of living together. On May 19, 1921, Nelson enters a San Francisco home under the guise of being a plumber and makes an attempt to assault a 12-year-old girl, Mary Summers. She'll scream and he'll run away, but he'll end up being apprehended only hours later. So he's found to be dangerous at a competency review, and he's once again admitted to the Napa State Mental Hospital. Before being released ultimately again from the institution in 1925, he also in that time period manages to break out once uh, more on two separate instances. Nelson's first uh, confirmed murder occurs in his hometown of San Francisco in February 1926. Despite some speculation that he in fact did murder three women in Philadelphia in late 1925. Although some authorities don't formally link Nelson to these earlier victims, he does match the description provided by a pawnbroker of the man who bought the victim's clothing and um, some of the crime's common elements, like the knots used to bind the victims, for instance, those matched his later crimes. Clara Newman, a well-to-do 60-year-old San Francisco landlady, is Nelson's first confirmed victim. On February 20th, 1926, Nelson enters her boarding home under the guise of Roger Wilson, a prospective renter. Nelson enters the home, strangles Newman, rapes her dead body, and then hides her body in an unoccupied apartment. On March 2nd, his second victim, 63-year-old Laura Beale, is murdered by being strangled in her San Jose, California residence. Beale is allegedly strangled with a silken cord that was wound so tightly around her neck that it becomes lodged in her skin. From February to August, a total of five more women are murdered. All of the cases follow the same general pattern. Middle-aged women who advertise their rooms for hire end up being raped and strangled to death. Some of their belongings are later sold off, but the killer is never identified. Nelson will follow this basic formula for the following year, looking for elderly landladies, claiming to rent from them, and then strangling them to death in their homes. Nelson would occasionally be seen scurrying from the house in the dark, but no one ever gets a decent enough look at him to help the police in actually catching this murderer. According to some potential witnesses, the attacker is described as being a dark, stocky man with long limbs and large hands. Some publications start calling the serial killer the Gorilla Man because of his strength and the fact that the description resembles a gorilla. Others will refer to him as the Dark Strangler, because of the way that he kills people, and because no one can get a good look at him. Authorities start to notice more strangulation and sexual assault cases identical to those in San Francisco later in 1926 and into 1927, including in Portland, Oregon, Council Bluffs, Iowa, Chicago, Kansas City, Missouri, Buffalo, New York, and Winnipeg, Canada. In June 1927, he crosses the border into Canada. Nelson will hitchhike to Winnipeg, where he sees a room for rent sign in a home's window. The landlady gives in to Nelson's tried-and-true, respectable Christian pretext, 
and permits him to hire a room for a month. Nelson will lure a 14-year-old girl who is selling flowers on the street into his recently rented home, where he strangles her to death. Nelson will depart his rented room the following morning, June 10, 1927, and looks around Winnipeg for another room for rent sign. He quickly locates Emily Patterson's home. Nelson said he didn't have any money, but if Patterson would give him a room, he'd be happy to make some small repairs to the home. And then he attacks and murders Emily Patterson, but not before repairing a screen door on the house. He leaves Winnipeg after this latest crime, purchasing a new suit from a nearby shop. The two women who are murdered in Winnipeg in two days match with the methods used by the gorilla man who had been wreaking havoc in the U.S. for the previous 16 months, according to Winnipeg police. The police anticipate that the killer will attempt to return to the U.S. border. So to all police posts between Winnipeg and the United States, they send off Nelson's description. Nelson ends up being detained on June 15th in the tiny Manitoban town of Wakopa as he's making his way towards the American border. Nelson is brought to the local jail and imprisoned. However, again, he's able to break out of his cell that evening using a nail to open the lock on his cell. It's only 12 hours later that as Nelson attempts to board a train bound for the U.S., he's apprehended by Winnipeg police officers. Ironically, the train he tried to board also happened to be carrying a lot of police officers. Nelson is detained until a Manitoba judge can hear his case for the murders of Patterson and Cohen. At the same time, he's also wanted in six different American cities. Nelson's trial is originally set to start on June 27, 1927, but Nelson's lawyer asked for a postponement, so it doesn't actually happen until November 1st at, at the Winnipeg Courts Law Building. R.B. Graham handles the prosecution, and Justice Andrew uh, Dysart presides over the case. The case against Nelson is about as clear-cut as a prosecution can get. Manitoba had never witnessed anything like it, and every day the courthouse is crowded with onlookers. Nelson was clearly identified by the prosecution's witnesses, and the evidence suggests that Nelson was the only person who could be connected to each murder. His defense lawyers had little ability to refute the damning testimony. Their only chance of success is an insanity defense victory. And Nelson's ex-wife and aunt, who both believed he was insane, provide evidence. On November 5th, 1927, closing arguments in Nelson's prosecution come to a conclusion. It's expected that the jurors will convict Earl Nelson and the judge would order him to be hanged. And the jury does not disappoint. They reach a guilty decision after less than an hour of deliberation. And Judge Andrew Dysart hands down the death penalty. On January 13, 1928, at the Winnipeg Bond Street Jail, Nelson is hanged at 7.30 a.m. I forgive those who have wronged me, are his last words. Early in the 20th century, neither the United States nor Canada had ever faced a serial killer who struck nationwide, or a national threat from a serial killer. There had been numerous mass murderers who targeted their own families, and someone like H.H. Holmes, who lured victims into his murderous hotel during the Chicago's World Fair. 
However, it's not until Earl Nelson that police are tasked with apprehending a single murderer who moved from state to state and then across international borders while committing the same crime. With the exception of the one 14-year-old girl and a newborn child of one of his elder victims, Nelson ultimately killed at least 22 and possibly as many as 26 women, almost all of whom were landlords. Nelson was able to transport victims from California to Oregon to Michigan to Pennsylvania to New York, despite the absence of modern transportation. His murderous rampage would also serve as the basis for the 1943 Alfred Hitchcock film, Shadow of a Doubt, which focuses on the Mary Widow murderer, a serial killer who preys on elderly widows and is played by Joseph Cotton. Earl Nelson would remain America's most prolific serial killer until the 1970s, when the true era of the serial killer begins. Maybe one day we'll make our way up to the 70s. It's a little modern for this podcast, um, but truly that is uh, the pinnacle of the serial killer era. That brings us to the end of the life and crimes of Earl Nelson. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion, you can find us on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or reach us by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.